Welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of the Kentucky chapter of Physicians for a National, national Health Program, and we're proud to be a community partner here with Forward Radio WFMP LP. The views and opinions expressed here on Single Payer Radio are those of the speakers and not the station. We're recording today's show on November the 18th. And just very briefly, uh, one of the uh, stories in this morning's Courier, uh, the headline was, Nursing Homes Awash in the COVID Surge. COVID tracking uh, project, according to the COVID tra tracking project, fewer than 1% of U.S. residents live in nursing homes, yet these facilities account for 40% of the COVID-19 deaths. More than 94,000 Americans have died in these long-term facilities. Roughly 70% of the nation's 15,400 nursing homes are for-profit entities. The value of 190 private equity deals in the nursing home industry since 2015 is $5.3 billion. So, let me uh, welcome back our two resident doctors, retired surgeons, emeritus professors at University of Louisville, Dr. Mike Flynn, Dr. Gene Shively. Morning, guys. What's on the table this morning? Yeah, good morning, Mark. It's good to be back again. Uh, let me begin with uh, the usual disclaimer that uh, uh, the comments that I make here are my personal views and, and do not represent the views of the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville. Good morning. Um, my views do not represent the Department of Surgery at University of Louisville nor Taylor Regional Hospital. Mark, could you repeat those uh, those data you have on the nursing homes, I think our audience really needs to understand that. What percent are for-profit? Seventy percent of the nation's 15,400 nursing homes are for-profit entities. Now, do you have any data on what percent of those are owned by equity companies? Well, the, uh, I, I did uh, bring up that in, uh, since 2015, you had 190 private equity deals in the uh, industry, and that amounted to $5.3 billion just since 19, or just since 2015. Uh, and it's trending more and more. I guess uh, you all might be discussing that this morning. Yeah, our, our topic for today uh, is uh, going to be investor-owned um, health facilities. And uh, I'd I just like to make a, a, a comment to the 
to the listeners that uh, a challenge that they don't need to believe anything that we say today. And I would challenge them to, to go out and use whatever resource that, that, that you're comfortable with, whether it's newspaper articles, uh, medical journals, or the reports from organizations like Kaiser Permanente. There's a huge amount of information out there about investor-owned health uh, care facilities. And uh, uh, again, we're, we're not making this stuff up. Uh, let me just begin with a, a kind of set the table a little bit about kind of where we are in terms of health care in this country today. Um, number one, um, in the United States, health care is not a system. I've seen two or three different uh, descriptions of it. One was a patchwork, and the one that I think is probably more appropriate is a crazy quilt. So we have uh, an assortment of government-run um, activities. We've got Medicare, which is an insurance program for people over 65. And we have Medicaid, which um, unfortunately is different things in different states for different people. Uh, for, um, for those under 65, uh, insurance, but exactly who gets what depends upon where you live and <laughs> what you do and how much you don't have. Uh, then there's a military system. The Army, Navy, and the Air Force all have health uh, systems. And, um, you know, when you hear people talk about socialism, uh, I've spent 20 years as a reservist in the, in the Navy, worked in hospitals in uh, this country and overseas, and this is basically social system of, of, of medical care. And nobody pays for uh, having your appendix removed or, or, or getting a biopsy or having your heart disease treated. And, and the president, when he took the helicopter to uh, Walter Reed National <laughs> Medical Center, didn't pay for it because nobody pays for health care when they're in the military. And in a similar way, you've got the VA, public health system, uh, and an assortment of nonprofits. Uh, in Louisville, for example, Norton Healthcare is a not-for-profit. Uh, U of L is not-for-profit, which runs um, a, a large number of hospitals and medical practices today, which they didn't uh, up until recently. And Baptist is is not-for-profit. And before uh, Kentucky One, which ran the Jewish hospital system and Lady of Peace and a number of other physician practices went under, it was run by CHI, Catholic Health Initiatives from Denver, which was also not-for-profit. And then we have uh, over a thousand for-profit health insurance companies which are taking hundreds of billions of dollars every year out of the healthcare system for an assortment of non-healthcare activities. So the the system or lack of system healthcare in this country is uh, vulnerable to uh, the for-profit predators, and the, the best examples of that are the for-profit health insurance companies and the pharmaceutical industry, and as we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, 
<laughs> things can get worse. Well, we're going to talk about investor-owned health facilities. We have 70, 80 million citizens in this country who are either uninsured or underinsured and vulnerable to medical bankruptcy. 60% of bankruptcies in this country are, are, are medically are, are of medical origin. That's the people that can't meet the costs of their health care. Rural and inner city safety net hospitals are closing. And this idea that the competitive medical marketplace will solve all these problems is a fantasy, which allows uh, an ideology um, which allows exploitation of health care as a commodity uh, versus a public service. So uh, this is not a happy situation. Uh, Gene, having given vent to my views about current health care, I'm going to turn the floor over to you. <laughs> well, I think we ought to define the difference between uh, profit and not-for-profit uh, hospitals. Almost all the insurance companies uh, in this country are now for-profit. And uh, the last really big not-for-profit insurance company was Blue Cross Blue Shield, uh, which gave up in, uh, I think it was 97, and they became for-profit. Uh, for-profit uh, hospital is a company who has investors, was like Columbia HCA. The first of the for-profit companies was Humana, which originally was a... Uh, for-profit hospital company. They started off as a nursing home, and then I think it was like 72, they bought uh, St. Joe's Hospital and then extended from that into a, a for-profit uh, uh, hospital company. And that means that they have investors. Uh, you can go buy, uh, like, Columbia HCA, you can go buy stock off the New York Stock Exchange, and the money that they make, um, the stockholders uh, get part of that in, in the form of dividends and then whatever their stock's worth, just like any other company. If you buy um, Columbia HCA at uh, $100 a share today, and two weeks from now it's worth 110, you sell it, you, you make money. Now, they claim that the reason the for-profits do well is because uh, they're investor-owned, uh, they pay taxes, and they say that they're more efficient and uh, that uh, they are better to compete. Well, to be more efficient in healthcare, it means that you have to decrease uh, your cost, and you decrease your cost by decreasing the number of personnel that's working for you and uh, other things. Now, we've known since the early 70s that competition in healthcare is different than the rest of the capitalistic system. Don't get me wrong. I'm absolutely for making money uh, on the stock market and the capitalistic system. But 
it doesn't work for health care. Uh, let me just give you an example. Uh, if you buy a very expensive uh, machine uh, in a big city, and it costs a lot of money to uh, treat that person, and there's only a certain number of people who need that. For example, let's say it's a proton radiation. Uh, there's some question about whether that's needed or not, but it's very expensive, and there are only a certain number of people who need it. Well, if another hospital company in the same big city buys it, what happens? It's not like Ford... Uh, company that produces too many cars then they reduce the price of the car actually the opposite happens they have to pay for this equipment and so they increase uh, the cost and this is ha uh, happens uh, in the healthcare industry uh, all the time now the other uh, about 50% of our hospitals are non-for-profit that means they do not pay taxes, and that the money that they make, in, in, any non-for-profit has to make a, a so-called profit in order to um, continue for the next year. Now, I have to admit that uh, some of these not-for-profits, uh, you, know, you have to be careful where the money goes, and sometimes it's really difficult. And some of these executives are making a huge amount of money. And some of this money is mixed in with non-for-profits. I know some hospitals who have a, a combination of for-profit and not-for-profit. I don't quite understand how that works. And another example is before the COVID uh, endemic, uh, Mayo Clinic was building a luxury ho uh, hotel uh, for its clients. Um, but, of course, they're a non-for-profit, but... Uh, um, how does building a luxury hotel uh, help you take care of patients? Well, we'll get into some of the uh, specifics of, of all this investor-owned or for-profit um, uh, management of, of health care facilities. But um, as you alluded to, both Humana and Columbia HCA ran University Hospital for different periods of time. This was not a pretty sight, and not only was it issue there are issues of staffing, uh, there are issues of just maintenance of the hospital. There's the Quality and Charity Care Trust that was oh negotiated years ago between I think John Y. Brown was a governor at the time, and I I don't remember. I guess David Jones, because I guess it was when Humana took over. And I could be wrong about that university hospital, but this was a, a bucket of money that was given to University of Louisville Hospital as, as the cost of doing indigent care. And, you know, the faculty who were treating the patients did just, they was, that was just part of their job. But <laughs> it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't pretty, and the, the, the <clears throat> resources that were extracted from that were, were then when, when uh, L took it back and started to manage it itself, those resources, instead of being used uh, for HCA profit or Humana profit, were, were, were uh, re reissued back into the hospital. 
and they were used to to improve the staff, um, uh, fix the elevators, paint the walls, and do all the things that that you needed to do for a um, uh, which is what a basic basically a safety net hospital for for Louisville as well as a level one trauma center. I've just got a question for you, Mike. Sure. When, when you said issues of staffing, they you're, you were referring to they came in and cut staffing. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, yes. Okay. I mean, this was I, – it, I have to go back a long way to remember all the details. Okay. But there was – it was – I was on the board of the um, uh, Brown Cancer Center at the time, and um, – one of um, Rick Scott's sort of right-hand men sat on the board one day, and um, a guy named David Vanderwater, and he sort of, in a sort of blustery way, was telling us all how they knew how to manage the medical staff, and they would kind of take care of things, and you know, and they weren't going to have a lot of trouble from the medical staff, and. Uh, <laughs> I was in practice with a with a renowned surgeon from Louisville named Condit Moore, and Condit Moore was uh, was uh, uh, at least partly responsible for the Brown Cancer Center because he he uh, along with uh, oh man I'm 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 having a mental block here but the, he got together with uh, Wilson Wyatt Senior. Uh, who was another, you know, these were two men of, of a very high renown in the local community, and they put they put together the fundraising. Um, Condit had the idea, and then Wilson Wyatt Sr. was was the, the mover, and, and they came up with the name of the Brown Cancer Center and got the Brown Foundation to fund it. But uh, he wrote a letter to uh, the dean at the time, and exposed a, a lot of the issues related to how Humana was running the hospital and, and the cancer center at the time, and, and the, all the inappropriate use of funds. And it really put a, put a, a, a cap on what, what they were able to do. <clears throat> Shortly after that, the uh, Humana moved on to become an insurance company because they could make more money and they ended up selling basically selling the hospital at Columbia HCA. And Mike, could you remind uh, people about Columbia HCA? Didn't they as Rick Scott was their CEO, didn't they get caught when you say uh, this, uh, this dude said HCA knew how to manage the hospitals didn't they have an issue with uh, defrauding Medicare? They had a huge issue. Uh, this is not something I researched, but uh, Rich Scott, because he had a gazillion dollars, was able to hire a bunch of lawyers to get he keep him from going to jail. And he went to Florida. And, uh, Columbia HCA moved to Nashville, and he went to Florida and ran for governor and won. And <laughs> And, 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 what are you going to say? And now he is uh, the senator, senator from Florida yes, in yeah. charge of the Republicans' senatorial campaign. Yep. Hmm. It's not over till the fat lady sings. <laughs> <laughs>
just as a reminder to our <laughs> listeners, you're listening to Single Payer Radio here on WFMP LP. Uh, well, go ahead, Gene. I, will you, whatever you, I, you've got a few things. I, I, when you get done with your next issue, I'm going to talk a little bit about nursing homes and some of the okay. specifics that we were t- re- referring to earlier before I got off this rant on University Hospital, <laughs> Columbia, HCA, <laughs> well, <and> Humana. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I was born and raised in Campbellsville and uh, then uh, been practicing there for, for 42 years. And so uh, in preparation for this uh, podcast, I started looking into the nursing homes in the surrounding area. And I was relatively surprised. One of the nursing homes has been there uh, since the 50s and was started by a nurse. And then it was was taken over by her son, who was the the administrator of the nursing home. And then uh, his brother was a dentist, and they owned it, and they ran this very nice nursing home for years. And then finally... Uh, because they were getting older and because it was so difficult to keep up with all the administrative demands, they sold it, and they sold it to a guy in Richmond who they knew and they thought would provide uh, good service. So I looked up that nursing home, and it's supposedly owned by uh, several LLCs, and I assume those LLCs are private individuals who uh, have a, are part owners in this nursing home. But it says on the top of the page they no longer own it. And so I don't really know who owns that nursing home now. The other interesting thing, there's another nursing home in Camelsville and one in Greensburg in Columbia, and they've been fairly good nursing homes uh, for a long period of time. And there's also another nursing home uh, in um, uh, over Casey County in Liberty, and they are all owned now by a, a for-profit company uh, that's based here in Louisville that owns lots of nursing homes here in Louisville and in other states. And I even talked to my uh, stockbroker about this company, and they're now in. Uh, uh, um, bankruptcy in chapter 11. Uh, So the issue comes up, uh, what do you do about nursing homes? I know a nurse who uh, uh, her mother had dementia and she was somewhat combative and she went to almost every nursing home in the state of Kentucky and couldn't get her admitted because she was combative. I had the same problem with my mother-in-law. We finally did get her uh, admitted at the end. But uh, it's becoming very, very difficult to get people in nursing homes. The other problem is their reimbursement is low. And then the other problem is where are you going to get people to work in nursing homes? Because it is extremely difficult to take care of people who've had a stroke, who they have to be fed, they have to have their diapers changed, and uh, and they have to be uh, uh, moved and turned every hour. It takes three people to get them up in a chair. Uh, how do we uh, fix this problem? And it's a basic problem that I think eventually... Uh, 
the government's going to have to step in at some point. And I don't mean the government's going to have to increase the regulation because if they increase regulation more and don't increase reimbursement, then um, nobody's going to do it. And I don't know any not-for-profits who would be interested in For example, uh, five years ago, there were a lot of not-for-profit uh, nursing homes in Louisville, but there are very few now. Um, I know a guy who was on the board of directors of the Episcopal Nursing Home, uh, but it's going to be very difficult to get church-related groups or other non-for-profits to go in, buy a nursing home, and uh, try to take care of these people. Well, well, the hedge fund operators aren't going to make it any better. No, uh, uh, and that's going to make it lots worse. Yes, I, I was. Uh, let me. Uh, few comments about nursing homes i i, I was surprised <clears throat> to learn as as mark mentioned earlier that 70 percent of nursing homes and long term care facilities are investor owned and then if you think about the the, the issue there at the, an investor owned um company's goal is to make money health care Providing health care is not a goal. It is a vehicle in which these people figure out ways to take money out of the system that is not going to be used to provide care. <laughs> it's going to be kept as profit. They, they expect uh, a return on investment of, I don't know, 10, 20, 30 percent a year, depending upon how much you know, they expect to get out of it or, what, you know, which, in, which investment hedge fund is, is, is doing this. So how do they do this? Well, uh, they fill up the beds and they reduce the staff and they reduce the services. And the result of that is poor quality care. And you, one of the things you mentioned a moment ago, Gene, is he didn't know who runs, who runs it. Well, they're very smart. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, so the way there's I'm reading about nursing homes in, in Florida, well, one company uh, owns the building, so they and they get a certain amount of money out because of I guess the rent of the building. Another company then applies for a license to provide health care. I don't know what their financial benefit is out of that and then another company will provide uh, the staff and it may be one company with the the staff of housekeepers and another company that provides the healthcare facility and and I got a couple of stories here about some of the really bad things that can go on in nursing homes and again as I mentioned earlier to anybody who's listening don't take our word for this. Just get online, go to a, a, a source of information that you, you think is useful, and you'll, you'll have your hair standing on end when you read about some of the stuff that goes on in, um, in uh, uh, for-profit nursing homes. So the, the question then becomes who's responsible for the care, the poor care, the medical errors, the medication errors, the bed sores, and the infections. So uh, 
a Florida nursing home, um, there's this person who's demented who is lying in bed and gets a bed sore. Well, if you put your hand on the lower part of your back, you can feel just above your buttocks, you can feel this, this hard uh, uh, bone of your pelvis, and there's relatively small amount of skin and fat over it. So if this person just lays in bed and doesn't get moved, which is a manifestation of bad nursing care, the skin overlying that bone dies, and then the fat underneath it dies, and they have an ulcer. Uh, again, the same uh, demented person lying in bed, not being moved out of bed, as Jean, you mentioned earlier, has probably got a diaper on. Well, that needs to be changed on a pretty regular basis. And in this one particular situation, it wasn't changed. And uh, the, the fecal contamination of not changing the diaper, which is down around the same area where you get the bed sore, caused an infection, which resulted in the death of a this this one individual and the and the family got uh, understandably were were not happy with this and hired a lawyer and when they tried to find out who was responsible for the care that they they had five or six layers of of different groups of people and it was literally a circular firing squad of people pointing fingers at each other. Now, one more quick story about the same thing, a similar thing, uh, another patient in a, another nursing home. Uh, again, and there's, there, you, they're, they're, you just go on and on and on with, with these stories, they're all out there. Uh, had tracheostomy. Tracheostomy is a tube that is put into your windpipe so you can breathe. Uh, I don't know the reasons why it was there. Um, obviously, something going on with the ability of the patient to breathe, either because they had a tumor or maybe some other reason, but uh, the, the presence of this metal or plastic tube in the windpipe requires a fair amount of um, medical care to keep it suctioned so it stays open. And in this particular case, this individual complained of difficulty breathing. Uh, apparently, according to a record, hadn't been checked for two days and suffocated and died because the tracheostomy tube was plugged um, with dried mucus. And uh, again, these are just two examples of, uh, of the kinds of things that go on in nursing homes where the staff is, is, is diminished. Uh, there are not enough people out there to, those, to get those three people you talked about earlier to move people around in the bed and get them out of bed and feed them and change their diapers. So, um, I mean, I don't know what the solution is, uh, but the problem is pretty obvious. And it, it, when, when you get into... Um, investor-owned medical practices, uh, investor-owned hospital systems, it's all the same thing. It's the issue of how, how the money that is designated to provide patient care is then uh, diverted for a non-healthcare use, which involves 
an assortment of other issues, including salaries, advertising, uh, investor dividends, and on and on and on. Well, Mike, let me just throw in, um, you, you uh, put a COVID-19 on top of those problems. Yes. And, oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> Again, and that, that part of that issue <clears throat> with the COVID is the fact that we don't have a system. We, we don't have some ability to coordinate the activities of, of, of uh, a, a safety net hospital a university hospital, a community hospital, a nursing home to, to be able to move people around from one place to the other so that they can deal with this issue. I, I, I think it, to the governor's credit, they've really done a good job, as well as you can do under the circumstances, dealing with issues of outbreaks in the prisons and in, in the long-term care facilities in Kentucky. Uh, because these are these are hard issues. I, I don't know how do you you know you you've got people all packed in together, and you can't empty out the prisons and you can't empty out the nursing homes. So you've got to try to do it, deal with it the best you can. And they seem to have done, you know, I think as good a job as you can do under the circumstances. Well, the the, the other issue is where are you going to find the people to work in these nursing homes? Yes. I can tell you that it takes a special person. Uh, to get paid $15 an hour and do this kind of work. Uh, it is uh, very hard. It's very demanding. And, you know, you have a patient uh, who is demented and is yelling at you and screaming at you, and uh, uh, you, you can't get somebody to help you. Uh, these are very, very difficult jobs. And so uh, there is some defense, but I don't think one of the defenses is making money. We need to take that money that's going to the stockholder, and it needs to be reinvested into the nursing home. Uh, one of the other issues is hospitals uh, uh, being bought by equity companies. And I'll just give you an example. Uh, last year, LifePoint, which is a large uh, company that has a lot of hospitals in the rural areas was bought out by Apollo. Apollo is a large equity company that owns other companies. For example, uh, they will buy a company that's in distress and then try to turn it around and sell it. Uh, they also buy uh, divisions of a company uh, and and then try to turn that particularly a company around. For example, Apollo uh, owns the uh, security company, ADT. They also own Hostess, and they own huge numbers of companies. Well, they now own two health care companies, and LifePoint is one of them. And the CEO of LifePoint got, I, it was, I think it was 27 million dollars when they separate uh, and Apollo bought them out. Now why uh, are sick folks uh, the money you make on them why should that go uh, to a, a financial company with stockholders and investors 
Why shouldn't that money go back to um, uh, the patient care, uh, uh, decreasing costs, and et cetera, et cetera? Uh, this this is becoming more and more common, and I think uh, if we don't turn that around, uh, we're going to have a uh, uh, a major problem. Well, Gene, we've lost our moral compass in this country when it comes to health care, and as I mentioned earlier, it it's been allowed to uh, be considered a commodity, as as a the same as the industry that makes cars or the, <laughs> the market or <laughs> the tailor or, 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 or the grocery store and and vulnerable to to profit as opposed to being considered a public service which is what it was considered for for decades before it started to disintegrate in the in the 80s and the 90s uh, let's just change horses just a little bit here and then talk about some of the issues related to physician-owned practices. Now, this is the same as same general category as whether it's a hospital system, but I, I, I had got some interesting information about some of the specifics of what goes on when your practice is taken over and run or managed by uh, an investor-owned company. So first of all, you had this huge conflict between providing health care and the profit for the investors, and um, which I didn't realize. It's interesting that the, the target groups are emergency rooms, uh, urology, gastroenterology, dermatology, surgical outpatient centers, uh, imaging, you know, X-rays, and uh, ancillary, the laboratories, and uh, so when an investor invests in something, they want a return on their investment, whether that's ten percent, twenty percent, fifteen percent, and uh, apparently the pattern of behavior is that they buy a practice and then they quote improve efficiency unquote which means they increase revenue, uh, decrease the cost. Uh, then after five, six, seven, or a number of years, then they will, <laughs> then they sell that practice to another company that wants to improve the efficiency even more and, and, and cut the cost. So uh, and how does this work? Well, uh, the, I, I looked at a, an interesting review of a large dermatology group uh, in California. So uh, the investor owned, the equity owners take uh, 20% profit. 20%? 20%. That's unbelievable. Off the top. Uh, the physicians sign a, a non-compete agreement. Now, you know, as we both know, those things can be different things in different times. You, if you leave that, that group, you, you, you may have to stay away for two or three years before you can practice in that area. And, and there's, the, there's a lot of variability in, in, in whatever exists in these non-compete agreements. Uh, they then encourage um, high-profit activities. 
like doing a bunch of biopsies and and Botox injections. So if you, it, the, apparently anybody would come into that dermatology group that had a, a skin lesion, no matter what it looked like, they got it biopsied. Is that, that's, that raises revenue. They set up financial goals for physicians. So they have this track. They're tracking people's activities to see how much money they brought in. Uh, they would encourage referral to um, other investor-owned uh, companies w within that network, like pathologists and the laboratories. Now, as we both know, there are good pathologists and not-so-good pathologists, and some pathologists are better at uh, some things than others, but... Uh, in this situation, it really didn't make any difference. They were encouraged to send their biopsies to the group of pathologists that, that worked that were in the investor-owned network. And then they would cut costs by obtaining supplies again from other investor-owned companies. And uh, regardless of the quality, one of the uh, one of the issues was um, was they had obtained a, uh, a series of, uh, of needles and the dermatologist would inject the local into the skin in order to numb it and, <laughs> and the tip of the needle would break off and so instead of uh, just getting the local anesthesia the dermatologist had to dig around in the skin to get the tip of the needle out and Again, these are a million examples of how um, the, the provision of health care is, is then directed by people whose focus is not on providing health care, but f figuring out how many different ways that they can make more money out of the system. And it's really, I mean, it's really scary. One more quick example. Another thing that was there was surprise billing. So if you go to uh, an emergency room of, of an investor-owned network and you go in there, I don't know, let's say you dropped a pot on your foot or something like that, and then they examine your foot and send you to have an X-ray, and then they send the X-ray to... Uh, uh, to be read by a radiologist who's not in the system, you get a bill. Or if you go and have a skin lesion removed and the skin lesion is sent to a pathologist that's not in the system, you get a bill. Now, uh, I mean, I've had x-rays and had a lot of orthopedic things done. It never occurred to me to ask the, 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 the orthopod whether the whether my, 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 the x-ray of my foot, <laughs> my shoulder, was being sent, going to be read by a radiologist was in the system or was out of the system. And, you know, and I've been a physician for, you know, for 50 years. And you just somebody who just happens to walk in to get something like that done. It's, this is scary. And the whole concept of providing patient care is 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 disrupted and marginalized by this desire to figure out as many little ways that you can pinch out a penny here and a pinch out a penny there 
not to put it back in the system so that uh, you can provide better care for the patient, but to take the money out of the system entirely and, and put it in the pocket of an investor who, 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 who's, who's, you know, want to get this 20% off the top. Uh, Botox is becoming a big deal. Yes. We have a, a nurse practitioner who uh, is doing Botox injections. <laughs> but uh, let me just quickly inject that just to, as far as how it's trending that private equity capital invested in healthcare grew from less than 5 billion per year in 2000 to 100 billion in 2018 that's a 20-fold increase. So if it's scary now, that— Hold, hold, hold on to your seat. Yeah. It's just—it's yeah. it, it is, is going gonna, gonna to get worse. Now, Did you say 100 billion? One, $100 billion in 2018 alone. Wow, that's a lot of money. That's more money than Mike makes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I retired two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> But he, he's got to stash that for the out-of-network uh, surprise billing. Now, you know, one of the gene, you, you said, well, how do, we how do we fix this? Well, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel. All we have to do is look around the world because um, most of the other 30-plus first-world countries have figured out ways to address these issues— not just of equity health care uh, involvement or investor-owned involvement, but just simply providing health care to their citizens. Um, they, they, they literally all have put together systems that provide basic health care for all of their citizens, whether they're in an urban environment or rural environment. And the models are all similar and somewhat different. Um, some allow for non-profit private activities. Some don't allow for any private activities. Some allow for for-profit uh, and not-for-profit private activities. There are literally few to none no medical bankruptcies. I'd read an article oh, a couple of months ago uh, in France in 2017. There were no medical bankruptcies, zero. In our, this country, as I mentioned earlier, 60 percent of bankruptcies in this country are medical, or, or, or medical origin. We have anywhere from 200 to 800,000 bankruptcies every year. Depends, varies year from year in this country. Um, they make good use of um, their health care resources. Their citizens are healthier. And then to, to, to kind of focus on some of the, the negatives that are brought up about this, these are all market economies. None of these countries have gone bankrupt because they provide decent health care to their citizens, which they which they... They, they, they fund 
again, out of a series of different sources. And um, for example, the, in, in, in Great Britain, they run the whole system. And it's, it's generally takes out of general taxation. They run the hospitals, they run the medical practices, they run the pharmacies, they run everything. Um, in Canada, they have a system uh, which based on uh, revenue from the central government, they cover the costs of hospital and physicians and the population then has got to determine how it's going to get coverage for the pharmacy, the drugs, pharmacies, dental, hearing, and things like that. And the central government provides the resources, the financial resources, and the provinces have to work out the details. Um, Israel, Saudi Arabia, which is not exactly you know, a bastion of raging socialism, provides decent health care for, for all of their citizens. So there are ways to do this out there. Uh, the question is going to be whether, whether we have the political will in this country. And I have some real doubts about that to make any major changes. Well, I, I want to prophesy here. On what's going to happen in the okay? I'm holding in, in on. That, I'm holding on to my seat. <laughs> you know, Saint uh, Saint Paul in Romans uh, twelve six was writing to the Roman Church, and one of the uh, he was talking about different talents, and one of the talents was prophecy. And uh, there's there's a new kid on the block that nobody's talked about. First, let me talk about the ACA. I if the Supreme Court. Uh, says the ACA is unconstitutional, then we're going to have a disaster. I don't think they're going to do that, but if they do, or if if Congress um, uh, decertifies the ACA, we're going to have about 20 million people with no insurance, about 100 million people with inadequate insurance. Let's hope that doesn't happen. Now, if the two senator, Democratic senators win in Georgia, then uh, it's going to be split 50-50, and the vice president will have to uh, break the tie. Uh, and the Democrats uh, will win. The big One of the biggest issues is going to be health care. And I think what they're going to do is a, private, uh, is a public option. Now, what does that mean? That means that they're going to expand Medicare down to age 60 and that there will still be private insurance. But here's... Something that I have never thought about, and I got this is not my idea, this is not my prophecy, but it's a, a doctor named Belk, B E L K, uh, he's an MD, and his brother named Paul Belk, who's a PhD, came up with this idea and predicts that in the future we're going to have privatized socialized medicine. Now, what does that mean? Well, let me give you an example. There's a company that most of us don't know about. It's called Centene, C-E-N-T-E-N-E. It's a private insurance company. Eighty percent of their profits are coming from managing government uh, insurance. Uh, today, approximately 40 percent of, of Medicaid is managed by private insurance. Example in the state of Kentucky is WellCare manages Medicaid in the state of Kentucky. About 50% of Medicare is being managed 
by private insurance companies. And that, if an example of that, all you have to do is turn on TV, and uh, everybody's pushing the advantage plans. The, the, the companies don't take a risk for that. What they're doing is getting money from the federal government, and they uh, are managing it. The same things happen in private industry. Uh, for example, a lot of the insurance uh, that uh, companies are buying for their uh, employees uh, are, are not really uh, insurance that the insurance company is taking the risk on. That the company is taking the risk, they hire the insurance companies to manage it. If uh, last year you had somebody who had a heart transplant, then your cost of insurance goes up the next year, and the insurance company gets more money. So I think this is an interesting concept in that we have uh, maybe involving into a, a socialized system which is privatized, uh, which uh, I really hadn't thought about. Well, well Gene, I, I, I don't really have a problem with that. We, I've University of Louisville is self-insured. Right. Health, health, the, the university. And um, over the course of time, they negotiate with, they, they, I, they've had plans run by Humana, by Anthem, um, and they pay them an administrative fee to run the system. They don't allow them to profit from the system. So I had really good when I was, before I retired, I had really good health insurance that was a, remember we had Susan, Susan Bornstein was on here not, right. not, not long yeah. ago. Yeah, a couple of weeks ago. And she was telling us that I may have the numbers wrong, if you two of you can remember, we were all here in the room at the same time. I think she said that their, their monthly premium was fifteen, sixteen, seventeen thousand dollars $17,000 a month, and, and their their copay, the insurance didn't kick in until they used up thirty-five thousand dollars. Do you do you remember the detail? It was it was a lot of money. Right now, I didn't have right. anything that was even close to that. So, if 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 you have a self-insured institution like University of Louisville, or the city of Louisville, or the state, or some kind of big a conglomerate of different organizations that wants to get together and 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 manage and have a have a health care plan I don't really have a problem getting some professional organization like that to manage it if you pay them the money to manage it but you don't allow them to do all the things with the co-payments and the surprise I didn't have all of the co-payments the surprise billings the, the you know the cheap insurance plan I can't remember it's called it something that doesn't doesn't cover anything and you get it for a year uh, you know all of this stuff that the for-profit health insurance companies get away with they don't get away with if they simply manage the plan well maybe this is you the know, answer in maybe, the future yeah yeah the the Republicans don't really have a plan but if it, the the Democrats are being criticized for having socialized our system. 
but we can say it's a public option or it's really a private option where we continue Medicaid and we continue Medicare and then uh, we, we guarantee that everyone in the country is uh, insured. There's no such thing as pre-existing condition and then we uh, pay for it through some type of mechanism with private insurance. And if we can control the cost of how much the private insurance are making, like uh, instead of they get 20%, maybe they get 15 or 10%, we may be able to get a system that evolves where everyone's covered and uh, everyone's relatively happy. I, I don't think they get a percent of the action out of UofL. I think they get paid a fee. To okay. do it. That's it. They just get paid X amount of dollars to manage it, and and then a year or two for a contract for two or three years, and then the next time around they they negotiate with two or three different insurance companies, and whoever pr provides them the best deal, they get to manage that. So that, that's not that's not bad, I think. And that also uh, uh, gives U of L the incentive for uh, the people who work for them to, to do wellness. Yes, and and, the, and they, in fact, did that. I don't know if you remember Richard, Richard Goldstein when he yes, was here. Yes, yes. Yeah, Richard was actually on do, was doing some of that. He, I remember he telling me once that the biggest expense that UofL had was diabetes. Right. Guys, another <laughs> hour has, almost an hour has yeah. flown by. Yeah. Uh, Thanks again for all your work on this. Um, Single-payer radio is a project of Kentuckians for single-payer health care. You can find out more information about the group and the activities that we're involved in by going to kyhealthcare.org, kyhealthcare.org. If you have comments about this program or want subjects covered, you can send our chairperson, Kay Tillo, an email. Kay's email address, let me make sure I don't mess this up, guys. It's Chime it, in here. It's NPO, uh, <laughs> not PO. <laughs> Nurse NPO at AOL.com. That's nurse npo at aol.com. When this uh, episode is broadcast, uh, Thanksgiving will have been will have uh, already occurred, and uh, we hope everybody has a uh, has had a good Thanksgiving, safe Thanksgiving. And Mark, thank you for your communication skills and keeping Gene and I with our noses to the grindstone. Thanks for that data you gave us about nursing home. I didn't know that. Yeah, I didn't either. Okay, guys, we're going to have to sign off here. Take care. Bye. All right. Thank you.